Uh, my name is Josh Miller, and I'm the lead pastor here at Center Church. And if you're a guest with us here this morning, I just want to say, uh, man, welcome. We're really excited that you're here. I'd love to meet you after the service, get to chat maybe over bagels and coffee outside. So I'd love for you to hang around and get to say hello. Um, if you're a college student who's back uh, a little bit early, man, really excited that you're back. Love, love, love college students here. And it's a big part of our heart for the community. So excited that uh, I'm starting to see some, some familiar faces from last spring. Um, today, we're going to talk about a theme that is very significant both in our society and in the Bible, okay? This theme is significant both in our society and in the Bible, and that theme is love. That theme is love. If you ask the average person in Charlottesville or in our society, hey, could our society use more love, they would, they would inevitably respond, of course. Of course our society could use more love. And the theme of love is not just important in our society, it's also really important in the Bible. It is one of the main components of biblical Christianity. So if you've ever been a part of a church that was not characterized by love, there was something that was very, very wrong there. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 goes so far as to say, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So most people agree that love is really important. But here's the challenge. God defines love one way, and our society defines love another way. So God defines love one way, and our society defines it another way. And that creates confusion. Sometimes what God calls love, our society calls intolerance. Sometimes what our society calls love, God calls foolishness or even sin. You see, love is one of the most important themes of the Bible, but what we're going to find is that biblical love is different in many ways from what our society calls love. So whether you're a Christian who wants to grow in maturity or you're just investigating Christianity and what it's all about, it's really important that we grasp what the Bible says about love because it's so crucial to really knowing God. And thankfully, chapter 3 of the book of Ruth is going to help us in that way today. In chapter 3 of Ruth, we are going to learn some of the characteristics of God's love. And by learning that, it's going to help us discern the differences between God's love and maybe what we often think of as love in our society, okay? So if you have a Bible, you can open it up or turn it on to Ruth chapter 3. That is where we are going to be today. So while you're opening there, let me kind of recap the story for you. So Ruth has four chapters, so we're in the third chapter of Ruth. The story begins with Naomi and her two sons following her husband Elimelech out of Israel, out of Bethlehem to the land of Moab. So there was a famine in Bethlehem, so there wasn't a lot of food, and there was more food in Moab. The problem was that Moab didn't know the God of Israel and in a lot of ways was, was pretty wicked. So Naomi follows her husband Elimelech out of the promised land and into the land of compromise. While there, unfortunately, Elimelech suddenly passes away. So Naomi is left with her two sons in Moab. She marries her two sons to two Moabite women, and they live there for 10 years without, any of, without her, her sons having any children. And then both of her sons pass away as well. So Naomi is left in a foreign land with no biological children, no husband, and two daughters-in-law that are Moabite. So Naomi hears that bread is back in Bethlehem, that the famine has been lifted, and so she decides that she's going to go back and try to live off the generosity of her family members. And she tells her daughters-in-law, she says, hey, you should stay here in Moab. It will be easier for you than trying to come with me. 
And one of them listens and goes back to Moab, but then the other one named Ruth, the namesake of the book, refuses to leave Naomi and pledges her love and commitment to Naomi. And she says, Naomi, where you go, I will go. Where you die, I will die. Your gods will be my gods. Okay, so that's the moment when Ruth really experiences personal conversion. So Ruth and Naomi walk back to Bethlehem, and the end of chapter 1, they walk into the town, and the women of the town say, oh, it's Naomi, she's back, we're so excited to see you. And Naomi says, do not call me Naomi, which means sweet, but call me Mara, which means bitter. Call me bitter because the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me, and he has brought me back to my hometown empty-handed. Okay, so chapter 1 is very, very sad and tragic, and it ends with, Two major needs, okay? Two major needs in the life of Naomi and Ruth. The first is food, okay? They're, they're destitute. They have no money. They have no way to provide for themselves. They need food. And the second thing they need is family. Because in society at that time, if you were going to have long-standing security, if you were going to have a place in society, you had to have a family. So those are the two big needs that we see at the end of chapter 1. Well, chapter 2 of Ruth tackles the issue of food tackles the issue of food. So Ruth goes out as a beggar into the fields because the harvest is being brought in, and she starts to pick up the discarded grain that's in the fields. This was sort of a social safety net that God had provided for his people. And she just so happens, among all the fields of Bethlehem, to come into the field of a man named Boaz. And now Boaz was of the same clan of Naomi and Ruth. So think sort of extended, extended family, okay? And he just happened to come out to that particular field at just the right time to see Ruth, and he becomes very interested. So he goes up, and he talks to Ruth, and he apparently, Ruth makes a very good impression, and he invites Ruth to lunch. And so Ruth comes and eats lunch with him, and afterwards, he says to Ruth, hey, you can, you can pick up grain from everywhere in my fields. You don't just have to pick up the stuff that my harvesters drop. You can go anywhere you want, and, and in fact, I'm going to have my harvesters lay out some food for you that you can pick up. So by the end of chapter 2, Ruth has gathered an enormous amount of grain, way more grain than you would ever expect someone out in the fields gleaning to be able to acquire, right? Boaz goes so far to say, hey, also don't leave my fields, but for the next six weeks that we're harvesting, I want you to stay in my fields with my workers so you'll be protected, and I want you to take all the food that you need. So chapter 2 of Ruth ends with God providing through Boaz the first major need of these women, which is food. They have plenty of food now. They probably have enough food for to last them a year. So chapter 2 is encouraging, but chapter 2 also ends with a bit of a cliffhanger because, man, Ruth and Boaz really hit it off when they first met, okay? Like they're talking. He's inviting her out to lunch. They're like doing this whole thing. And six weeks go by, and they're working together, and they're out in the fields together, and nothing has happened, Okay, so chapter 2 ends this way. So Ruth lived with her mother-in-law. And everybody said, bummer, right? Like, that's not what you're looking for. Ruth is this, you know, she needs a husband. She wants to be in a relationship, and she's living with her mother-in-law. That is not a great way to end chapter 2. All right, well, that brings us to Ruth chapter 3. And I'm very excited about Ruth chapter 3 because it is the climactic turning point of the story. Okay, it is the climactic turning point of the story. Ruth is about to turn up the temperature on this relationship in a significant way. All right, this is the all-in moment for Ruth, okay? She pushes all of her chips to the middle of the table, and one of two things is going to happen. She's going to win big, or she's going to lose it all. All right, that is Ruth chapter 3. All right, starting in verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? So six weeks have elapsed. Ruth and Boaz have been rubbing shoulders, and Boaz hasn't made a move. The harvest is almost over. 
So Ruth's opportunity to interact with Boaz is coming to an end. So her mother-in-law says, basically, Ruth, shouldn't I try to find rest for you? Isn't it, isn't it my responsibility as your mother-in-law to try to sort of like push you in the right direction so that you might get married? Shouldn't, shouldn't I have a plan for you? Basically, Ruth, you need a husband, and I've concocted a plan. Okay, that's what Naomi is saying. Verse 2, is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were working? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Okay, we learned two things here that are important about Boaz. First, he is a particularly eligible bachelor for Ruth because he is one of Naomi's relatives. And we all said, what? Like, that sounds weird, right? But you have to understand Israelite culture, relative meant very, very extended family. So to modernize it a little bit, it's more like if your family had some really good family friends and there was somebody, like they had a kid that was kind of your age. So you ever had this with your parents? So they're sort of plotting who you're going to be with. Like, oh, you know, Johnny's great. He just graduated from tech, you know, like and the whole thing. Right, that's kind of what we're talking about here. Very distant relations. And Ruth wasn't even from Israel. She was a Moabite. So there's no like weird like blood relation going on here, okay? But here's what we know. Boaz is, is an eligible bachelor for Ruth. He would be a really good match. Here's the second thing that we know. That night, he's going to be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. And everybody was like, great, what does that mean, right? All right, well, here's how it worked. You would harvest for about six weeks and you would bring in all kinds of barley, right? But the barley that you could eat was, was the grain that was inside of what was called shaft. So think about a piece of an ear of corn. You know how to eat corn? You actually have to shuck it first. You have to take the husk off of it. It was the same idea. You couldn't just eat the barley. First, you had to process it. Well, the way they processed it was called winnowing. So they would take all the harvest out to usually like a secluded area on the side of a hill where there was a consistent breeze, and they'd go out there at night when the breeze was blowing, and they would take pitchforks, and they'd throw the stuff up in the air. And what would happen is the shaft would be blown off of the grain because the grain is heavier. So the shaft would sort of fly down the hill into wherever, and the grain would fall on the threshing floor, thus giving you something you could actually use, you could eat, okay? So winnowing was the last stage in the harvest process. And it's important to understand that this was a very happy time of year. You worked hard all year to get to the winnowing stage. And so what the men of the town would do is that they would all go out in the evening to the threshing floor, and they'd work hard, and they'd collect all this grain, and then they would have a huge party, okay? Because it was just like a fun time. It was sort of like Thanksgiving meets a work day meets a camp out, okay? It's kind of a funny combination. So they'd all go out there, and they'd work, but it's like a happy work. Like, yes, look at all this food that we have. And then they would eat, and then they would drink, and they'd tell jokes, and maybe somebody would play ukulele. I don't know. And then they would sleep out there. And you might think, like, that's a weird thing to do. Like, why would you sleep out in the middle of, of nowhere? Well, think about how much work you do to get to something you can actually eat. You wanted to protect it. You see, people would go around when they knew people were winnowing and try to steal grain from your pile. And so what you would do is you would literally sleep around the pile of grain. It was like, if you want to steal this grain, you're going to have to literally walk over my body to do it, okay? So here's what we learned. Boaz is an eligible bachelor, and he's going to be out in a secluded area. He's going to be having a good time, and he's going to be sleeping out there, all right? The stage is starting to get a little shady, all right? And it's going to get more shady. Let me just warn you. So um, that's what we know. Verse 3, and this is what she says. I love Naomi. She's a bold woman. Verse 3, wash, wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. This is terrible dating advice, okay? If anyone ever tells you to do this, do not do this, but it's in the Bible. All right. 
And this is like pretty shocking if you just read it like that, but there's, a, there's so much innuendo happening here. It's hard for us to appreciate because we're not Hebrews, but all right, here's basically what Naomi says. Hey, Boaz is going to be out with the boys having a good time tonight. So here's what I want you to do. Take a bath, put on your best perfume. That's what it means to anoint yourself and put on like a really nice dress, like put on your best cloak. It gets shadier. Then go out there and, and watch and wait until he's eaten a good meal and he's, you know, maybe had a drink and, you know, he's telling stories and he's in a really good mood. And then here's what I want you to do. I want you to watch where he goes to sleep. Don't let anybody else see you. Sneak up to where he's sleeping and then uncover his feet and snuggle up next to him. That is literally what Naomi said. That is in the Bible. You're like, what? Okay. And here's the thing. If you understand some of the, the nuance here, it's actually even shadier than it, than it seems at first. Because, um, all right, there, there's a lot of double entendre going on here. All right? couple things. Uncover. That word uncover, you see that in verse 4, go and uncover his feet. That is a word used throughout the Old Testament as a euphemism for explicit sexual activity. All right? Like, if you look that up in other passages in the Old Testament, it does not mean pull the cloak down over his feet. Okay? It means something very different. So that's like, whoa. Then... <laughs> feet or legs, that she uncover his feet or legs, I, this is, I didn't say this, this is literally what it means in the Bible, is a euphemism for private parts, okay? So she says, hey, go uncover his feet. And you're like, uh, okay. And then, and then she says, lie down. Lie down was also a euphemism for, like, sleep with him, okay? So, like, in the way that our culture would say, like, oh, they slept together, and we don't actually mean they just slept together, like, we meant something else happened. That's literally what the, that's the phrase, lie down, means. And, and then just to, like, put a cherry on top, she says, hey, do all these things, and then when he wakes up, just do what he tells you to do. You're like, this is terrible advice. Like, what is happening here, okay? Um, here's the thing. All of it is double entendre. So, Naomi isn't explicitly telling Ruth to go seduce Boaz and sleep with him, okay? She's not explicitly telling her that, but the author wants us to understand just how charged the situation is. This is not something that was appropriate to do with just anybody. This is only the kind of thing that you would do with a spouse, okay? Verse 5. <laughs> this is crazy. And she replied, all that you say I will do. And you're like, what? Like, you kind of appreciate Ruth here, okay? Like, Ruth is like, all right, let's do it. You know, like, what the heck do I have to lose, you know? Um, nothing's happened so far, so let's turn up the heat a little bit. I just, I love the picture of biblical womanhood that you get in Ruth, okay? Just in this book alone, she's hardworking, she's a woman of noble character, she's loyal, and she is bold, all right? She is not afraid to put it all on the line to go after what she wants. She's like, all right, this sounds like a very reasonable play, let's do it. All right, verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, just the author wants you to know, he's in a good mood, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, remember to protect it. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Now, put yourself for a second in Ruth's shoes, all right? She's there on the edge of the threshing floor where no one can see her, right? She's kind of at the very edge of sort of the campfire. And she's been watching Boaz, right? She's seen him work. She's seen him eat. She's heard him tell a couple of jokes. All right, now he's left the, the fire. He's gone over here to the corner to go to sleep. I mean, her heart has got to be racing, right? She's probably thought several times, like, this is crazy. I'm going home. But, like, she stayed there. Okay, is he asleep? Is he not asleep? Oh, he just moved. I think he, okay, all right. I think he's asleep. All right, let's do this, right? And so she, like, walks out of the darkness. Um, she, she approaches quietly. She pulls the blanket off of his feet, and she lays down next to him. Now, is she perpendicular to him? 
is she parallel? Is she snuggling? Is she at a distance? We don't know. Like, the, the, literally, the text is intentionally vague on purpose to, like, create this, like, like the, uh, the original Hebrew audience is, like, blushing at this point, right? They're, like, covering their kids' ears and stuff. Like, this is, this is, like, rated R for Hebrews, okay? All right. Verse 8. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman, right? Like, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. I love this. So, all right, Boaz is probably cold because she had pulled the, the blanket off his feet and it's breezy out there on the threshing floor. So probably it's like midnight, it's gotten colder. So a breeze comes by and he's like, oh man, it's cold. So he like goes to turn over, right? We've all done that before. And behold, a woman, right? He's like, I don't remember you being here when I slept, you know? Like, did I have more drinks than I thought I did? I don't know what's going on, right? So behold, a woman. And you know Ruth hasn't been asleep this whole time, right? Like you don't go to this, like she, her mind is racing. So I just have this picture of like, parents, have you ever taken a nap and you just sort of sense that someone's close to you, and you open your eyes, and your kid's like six inches from your face. You're like, whoa, you know, he's like these two big allies. I, that's just what goes through my mind. Like, Boaz turns over, he looks, and there's Ruth like, whoosh, you know, like, well, hello, behold, a woman. Um, yeah, so that two sets of eyes looking right at him. And then Boaz asks a uh, very reasonable question, verse 9. He said, who are you, right? Like, a pretty reasonable thing to say. Um, he can't tell who it is. Apparently, he could tell that it was a woman. And so, he, you know, he asked a very reasonable question. And I love, to, I love to think about, like, what was the tone of how he asked that question, right? Like, like was it confused? Like, who are you? You know, like, this is interesting. Was it shocked? Who are you? Or wait, like, did he play it cool and whisper? Hey, who are you? You know, like, I, I don't know. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. She answered, and she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Okay, this is really important, important verse in this chapter. Ruth refers to herself as his servant. Now, she did that also in chapter 2, verse 13. But the word she uses in chapter 2 much, is much more kind of like, a, like a, a worker or a slave even, like, hey, I'm your worker. But in chapter 3, she uses a word that's much more personal that denotes a relationship. So it's really like her saying, like, Boaz, like, I'm your servant. I'm here. I'm presenting myself to have a relationship with you. Like, we have a, we have a friendship, and I'm sort of inviting, inviting you to, to take it further. And what's interesting is that to this point, this is really important, to this point, Ruth has followed Naomi's shady plan to a T. She's done absolutely everything that Naomi told her to do. But here, Ruth actually departs from Naomi's plan. What did Naomi say? Hey, get dressed up, go out there, and then just like do what he tells you to do. And Ruth is like, eh, I'm not going to do that. So here's what Ruth does. She says to Boaz, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Okay, this is Ruth saying to Boaz, hey, in case you missed all these hints, I want you to pursue me in marriage. I want you to pursue me in marriage. I'm not here looking for a good time. I'm here looking for a husband. See, Ruth makes her intentions explicitly clear, and it's also really intriguing how she does it. See, Ruth was very smart. She's a very smart woman. So here's what she does. You see that phrase in your Bible, spread your wings over me? You see that? Well, if you're here last week, you might remember that phrase from last week. You see, when Boaz and Ruth initially talked with one another, um, Boaz prayed a blessing over Ruth. And he basically said, Ruth, may you find favor under the wings of the God in whom you've come to take refuge. So here's what Ruth does, and I love this. Ruth grabs the same phrase that Boaz used, and she's basically like, hey, Boaz, remember when you prayed that God would take care of me, that he would spread his wings over me and protect me? Here's your chance to answer that prayer. Ruth is sharp. So she knows what she's doing. She's thought this out. She's like, all right, I'm not just going to sit there and be like, what do you want to do, Boaz? She's like, no, here's what I want you to do. I want you to spread your wings over me, and I want you 
to marry me. All right, verse 9 is the height of tension in this chapter, which is the height of tension in this book. Like, what is going to happen? This is a bold plan. How is Boaz going to respond? Well, I mean, he could scold her, right? He could, he could say, you shouldn't be here. You've misinterpreted my charity as something else. Leave now and do not come back to my fields. He could have scolded her. He could have taken advantage of her, right? I mean, Ruth had made herself very attractive. She had gone out to a very remote part of town where no one would know. It's kind of a, you know, a little bit of a raucous crowd out there. And she's like laid down right next to Boaz. And remember, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. This was at a time in Israel's history where everyone did what was right according to their own eyes. So had Boaz taken advantage of her sexually, he simply would have been acting like most of the people that lived in Bethlehem. And Ruth didn't have a family. So like who is going to call him to account for it, okay? I mean, this is a very, very, very tenuous situation for Ruth. How is Boaz going to respond? Verse 10. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. (sighs) Okay, we all breathe a collective sigh of relief. Boaz responds favorably, right? He refers to her as my daughter and is even flattered that she would pursue him in marriage rather than a younger man. So we get the picture that Boaz is probably a little bit older. Verse 11, and now my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. So Boaz continues and he says, he says, Ruth, don't be afraid. Everything that you've asked me to do, I'm going to do. In fact, everyone in town knows that you are a worthy woman. Now what's interesting about that phrase, worthy woman, is that when we were introduced to Boaz in chapter 2 verse 1, it said Boaz was a worthy man. So what the author is showing us is that Boaz sees Ruth as his equal. He, know, he doesn't see Ruth as this foreign Moabitess who's a beggar who just needs his help, but he sees her as a worthy woman and she sees him as a worthy man. And here's what's fascinating. In the Hebrew ordering of the Old Testament, the book of Proverbs comes just before the book of Ruth, okay? So in the Hebrew order, it's all the same books, they're in a different order. Proverbs comes just before Ruth. Well, If you've ever read the 31st proverb, the very last proverb, it talks all about a worthy woman. So it talks about kind of this this ideal, godly, worthy woman, and it, it describes all these characteristics. What's interesting is that in the Hebrew Bible, that ends, and immediately the book of Ruth begins, and in Ruth chapter 3, Boaz says, you are a worthy woman and everybody knows it. So what's happening is that Ruth is a physical illustration of what a worthy, godly woman should be from Proverbs 31, and she's a Moabite. Like, if you were an Israelite, you'd be like, what is happening, okay? It's not the, you know, born and bred in the church, grew up in spiritual things. Like, that's not the person. It's the person who, man, came to faith in Christ later in life, has a history, right? Has not always followed God, but now, like, man, has come into the family of God and has become a picture of a worthy woman, okay? That is what we're seeing in Ruth. She is an equal now with Boaz. Verse 12. He goes on, and now it is true that I'm a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Devastating. Okay, just devastating. We learn that there's another man in the picture. There's another man in the picture. Another man in the community who is of closer kin, of closer family relation to Naomi and Ruth, and he is a redeemer nearer than Boaz. Okay, what's a redeemer? What's a redeemer? You might be like, what does that even mean? Okay. In the book of Leviticus, which is in the Old Testament, 
God set up a law to help protect widows, to help protect widows. If a husband died and didn't leave his wife with any children to provide for her, it was the responsibility for a close relative to marry that widow to provide for her both food and family. That sounds a little bit weird to us just in our culture today, but you have to understand it was a huge blessing to widows. It kept them from becoming destitute, and it kept them from becoming taken advantage of. Someone else in the clan would say, man, you no longer have a husband, so I'm willing to become your redeemer, and I'm willing to provide for you what you need. Boaz is, in fact, one of Ruth and Naomi's redeemers, but here's the problem. He's not the closest redeemer. There's another man in town, we didn't know this beforehand, there's another guy in town who's actually a closer redeemer, he's closer in relation, so he has priority than Boaz. So Boaz can't just go and redeem them, right? He first has to, he first has to talk to this guy. And the, you know, we, the guy hasn't done anything yet, he hasn't entered into the conversation, so we don't know what kind of guy he is, right? He, at least he doesn't seem to be really positive because he hasn't been like, oh, I'm your redeemer, let me help you out. He's just kind of let Boaz do it, Okay. Verse 13, remain tonight and in the morning. If this other man will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So it wasn't safe for Ruth to walk back like in the middle of the night, right? There, I mean, there's lots of thieves and things that would be out during harvest time to try to steal food. So he says, hey, stay here, stay here until the morning. And then tomorrow morning, I'm going to go and I'm going to talk to this guy, right? And if he's willing to do his responsibility, if he's willing to marry you, great, but if not, I'll do it in a heartbeat. I'll do it in a heartbeat. And can you imagine for a second what is running through Boaz and Ruth's mind as they're just like laying there trying to go back to sleep under the stars? I mean, Boaz is like, man, I went to sleep like six hours ago as a bachelor, and I woke up to, the, to a wedding proposal, you know, like to a marriage proposal. And Ruth is sitting there thinking, like, on the one hand, she's thrilled, like Boaz, this worthy, godly man that she respects, like, feels affection for her, wants to marry her. So she's thrilled this crazy plan worked, and yet she's in another cliffhanger because it's like, what if this other guy wants to, I don't even know this other guy. Like, what if this other guy wants to marry me and I'm not with Boaz? Like, oh, like it, it's just like, I mean, they, you know they weren't sleeping much, okay? Verse 14. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you were wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. So they got up before dawn so that nobody could kind of see who was doing what. And he's like, hey, let's just like keep this between us because we don't want people to get the wrong idea about what happened here tonight. Um, but he gives her a parting gift. So before she goes, he says, hey, you know, she had this outer cloak on. So he says, pull your cloak out. And he measured about 75 pounds of harvested grain into her cloak, right? This is a big haul. And he wraps it up and he puts it on her shoulders, right? And then she walks back into town with 75 pounds of grain. Again, Ruth is a tough woman. Like, do not mess with Ruth. Like, she, she can handle herself, okay? Um, so she walks back in. Verse 16. And when she came to her mother-in-law, her mother-in-law said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her. Now, you want to talk about someone who didn't sleep last night. Let's talk about crazy Naomi, Okay. She concocts this ridiculous plan and had no idea how things were going. Like, keep in mind, Ruth wasn't sending her text messages, right? She wasn't like, all right, he's sitting down to eat, dot, 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 finally asleep, dot, dot, dot. I'm going for it, emoji of monkey covering face with hands, you know, like, like it's just, she has no idea. She's like, did he take advantage of her? Did she get caught? Did she get hurt by robbers? I have no idea. So 
when Ruth comes back, Naomi's like, how did it go? But here's what's interesting. The literal phrase that she says is not, how did it go? She said, who are you, my daughter? Who are you, my daughter? What she wants to know is, are you now part of Boaz's family? Has he agreed to bring you into his family and protect you under the shadow of his wings? Again, the author is, again, driving again and again and again. Our focus, too, they need family. They don't just need food. They've got food. They need family. So Ruth told her what had happened, right? Well, he, he said yes, but there's this other guy we didn't know about, so we're still sort of on a cliffhanger, okay? Next verse. These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Now, I love this. Boaz was a wise and godly guy, okay? He knew that when Naomi came back, she was bitter, she was hard-hearted, she was mad at God. Why? Because she felt like God had sent her away with lots of things and brought her back empty. So here's what he does. He gives Ruth 75 pounds of grain, not for Ruth. He gives it to her for Naomi. And he says, hey, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. He's making a point here to Naomi to say, Naomi, you're not, you're not empty. Man, God hasn't abandoned you. God sees you, and God will provide for you. Verse 18, she replied, Naomi replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. So Naomi says, hey, sit, sit tight. By the end of the day, we will know our fate one way or another. And with that, the curtain closes on Ruth and Naomi. This is the last time that Ruth and Naomi talk in the entire book of Ruth, right? At this point, the, the spotlight shifts from Ruth and Naomi over here over to Boaz. We have this idea of these two women sitting at home and waiting to see what God will do. Because in, in one sense, it was up to Boaz now to go and talk to this man. But in a, in a greater sense, that really fits the book of Ruth, it's up to God, right? Every step of the way, Ruth and Naomi have had to walk by faith and trust God. When they are in Moab, they had to walk by faith to come back to Bethlehem. When they are in Bethlehem, they had to walk by faith to go out and get food. When they came up with this crazy plan, they had to trust God and walk by faith. And the end of chapter 3, they are still walking by faith. What will happen? Well, you have to wait till chapter 4. All right, next, come back next week. Here's the thing. Ruth is a fascinating story. I mean, when you really understand it, it is it is up there with any love story you've ever read. There's intrigue, there's drama, there's tension. I mean, it's, it's really fascinating. But what are we supposed to learn from the book of Ruth? What are we supposed to learn? Well, it's important to understand that all of the narrative that's included in the Bible, so when I say narrative, I mean the stories of the Bible, are included by the authors on purpose. They're included for the purpose of teaching us about who God is. Now, sometimes they do that by re uh, recording negative examples that teach us things that aren't true of God or that God does not love. But sometimes they do that by recording positive examples that help us understand a reflection of God's character. And when it comes to the book of Ruth, it's, it's the positive case. The book of Ruth teaches us about the love of God in some pretty specific ways. And you might ask, well, why the love of God? Why, why not something else? Well, there's this really important word in the Old Testament called hesed. Hesed, okay? It's a fun word to say sometimes. Hesed, right? And hesed is all over the Old Testament, and the majority of the time that word is used, it is used to describe the unique love of God for his people. So the word hesed distinguishes God's love from every other idea of love. Does that make sense? So when you say hesed, you're not just talking about like Hallmark's view of love. You're talking about God's biblically defined love, okay? And it's usually hesed is all about God. But in the book of Ruth, the word hesed shows up at three very important points 
that help us, uh, help us pick up that the author wants us to see, hey, you're going to learn something about God's has said love through this story. Okay, three important points that that pops up. And it happens in chapter three. That word comes up again. It tips us off that we are going to learn about God's love through the love shown in this story, okay? And no one of these characters is exactly a translation to God. So you shouldn't read this and be like, oh, Boaz is God, or Ruth is God, or Naomi is God. If you do that, it's going to get real weird, okay? Um, But each of their actions show us something about the character of God's love, and by understanding that, it will help all of us have a better idea of what biblical Christian love is supposed to be like, as opposed maybe to what we've seen in our culture, okay? Okay? Three things we're going to learn from this story. Number one, you can write this down. God's love is holy. God's love is holy. Sometimes in our society, love is used as the trump card to justify any sort of behavior. What do I mean? Well, why did you leave your spouse? Well, I fell in love with another woman. How many times have we heard that? Movies or in person. What is that person saying in that moment? They're saying, well, I know it's not good to leave my spouse and to cheat on her, but I love this other woman, and so love trumps that. So I can do this immoral action because I love this person. But what we learn in Ruth is that God's love is holy. Someone who practices hesed love, someone who is defined by the love of God, uses it not as an excuse for immorality, but rather as a motivation for deep holiness. Okay, if you are defined by hesed love, It means that you are deeply concerned for holiness because God's love is holy love. Look, we see that in Ruth, okay? We see that modeled in Ruth. Ruth showed great hesed love to Naomi. She was committed to Naomi. She was willing to put her life on the line to see Naomi provided for. But you'll notice, like I pointed out, that Ruth chose to make her intentions with Boaz very clear. Naomi gave her a shady plan at best, and Ruth took that plan and said, look, I'm not willing to live in this gray space where it might go in a way that is honoring to God or it might not. She said, no, I'm not willing to do that. From the very moment that he knows I'm there, I'm declaring my intentions to Boaz. You see, Ruth's love for Naomi was holy. She wasn't willing to sacrifice God's holiness to try to help Naomi, but she said, look, the best way I can help Naomi is by honoring the Lord, because if I honor the Lord with his kind of love, I think that he's probably likely to bless the outcome. We see Hesed love in Ruth. We also see it in Boaz. This is really interesting. Look, Boaz had said love for Ruth, right? He was willing to be committed to her. He was willing to take her into his family. He was willing to do all these things. He agreed to become her redeemer, to marry her. But, hear this, he wasn't willing to compromise God's law to do it. He said, look, Ruth, I want to do this, but there's someone that's closer than me as a redeemer. So I'm not just going to try to circumnavigate the system and say, come on, God, like, we love each other. Like, let's just do this. He said, no, tomorrow I'll go and I'll talk to that man. And if he's willing to redeem you, let it be. Here's what's radical about Boaz's actions. He submitted his personal desires underneath God's holiness. One of the greatest challenges that we have in our culture is that we often live as though our personal desires should trump all else. So it's really easy for me, it's easy for you to come to the Bible and to say, God, your law is good and I trust it unless, unless it conflicts with something that I desire. Unless it conflicts with my idea about sexuality or my idea about relationships or my idea about money or my idea about whatever. Right? What happens is we have a choice to make. Are we going to bow to God's word or are we going to ask God's word to bow to us? 
And what we see in Boaz is he didn't allow his personal desires to, to trump God's law. He said, look, I want to marry you. You're a worthy woman. I'm flattered even that you would come and seek me because I'm older, but I'm not, gonna, I'm not just going to throw off God's law because this is what I want to do. Guys, honestly, if this was a romantic comedy, if Ruth was just a romantic comedy produced you know, by Hollywood or whatever, here's how it would end. It would end with Ruth and Boaz enjoying a night of passion under the stars, and then the credits would start to roll. That's what would happen. Because in our culture, the ultimate moment of romance or love is when you throw off all restraint and you feel romantic passion and you, and you have sex. Now, romantic comedies don't produce sequels, right, where all the, the, the brokenness and the hardship that comes from living that way is fleshed out. But guys, the Bible presents a kind of love and a kind of love story that is so different from what our culture says love is. And it's, and it's worth asking the question, why? Like, why does God care so much about holiness? Is he just a cosmic killjoy that just wants to have lots of rules? No, he loves you and he wants good for you. And what we find in scripture is that when we live our lives according to God's law, it blesses us. So this past week in our Bible reading plan, if you're doing that with us as a church, we read Psalm 1, the very first Psalm in the book of Psalms. And I love Psalm 1. It says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. That word blessed in verse 1 is a Hebrew word that means the good life. It means fulfillment. It means satisfaction. It means joy. It means all the things that you long for deep inside. And what the Bible is telling us, what God's word is telling us is, hey, the blessed life, the good life comes not when you walk in the counsel of the wicked, but it comes when you delight in God's law. Because hear me, friends, God is for you. His law is for you. And he loves you enough to tell you no. God loves you enough to tell you no. And again, this is at cross purposes with our culture's definition of love. Because the way that our culture thinks about love is that if you really love someone, it means that you will affirm them and all of their decisions no matter what they do. Right? This is where God's love and our society's definition of love could not be more different. You see, God loves us and he loves people enough to tell us no when what we're doing is going to lead to our destruction. But our culture says, hey, no, love means affirming people no matter what all the time. And if you don't affirm them, you're being intolerant. But here's the thing. Let me just argue this out with you a little bit, okay? If you think deeply about that assumption, it doesn't even make sense. For example, I'm sure all of us here have done something that we really regret, right? Is that true? Or if you haven't done something yet, you will. Imagine you had a time machine, and you could get in that time machine and go back and talk to yourself just before you were going to make that decision. What would you do? Would you say, man, I love you. Go ahead and do it. No, you would plead with yourself. You would say, don't do that. You are going to regret it. You're going to hurt people. You're going to hurt yourself. You don't understand what's going to happen. Don't do it. You would plead with yourself not to do it. Because we know, we know that sometimes love means saying no. Or think about uh, like a personal trainer, right? You hire a personal trainer because you want to change, and the trainer's entire job is to tell you no to some things and yes to other things. Like no on the Krispy Kreme donut, yes on leg day, Okay. Like, that is what a trainer does. And we hire people. We hire people to tell us no. Or think about a doctor, right? If your eating habits are leading you to have a heart attack, like if you have tons of cholesterol and, like, if you keep eating the way that you're eating, you're going to die, like your, your quality of life is going to go way down, what is the loving thing for a doctor to do? 
It's to tell you, you've got to change your eating habits. You've got to stop acting this way, and you need to start acting that way. It would not be loving for the doctor to, like, slap you on the back and be like, things look great. Go have a great life, you know. See you at the autopsy in two weeks, right? Like, that would not be loving. You see, when we love someone biblically, hear me, when we love someone biblically, it means that we seek their good even when it requires speaking hard truth to them. When we love someone biblically, it means we seek their good even when it requires speaking hard truth to them. God loves you too much to let you walk into disaster unwarned. God loves you too much to let you walk into disaster unwarned, which is why his word is full of encouragements to holiness and warnings against sin. And if you're a Christian here this morning, you have been called specifically in God's word to do this for one another. The Apostle Paul said that we as a church grow in maturity as we speak the truth to speak the truth in love to one another. As we speak the truth in love to one another. So we're not just being mean and brash and abrasive. We're, we're speaking the truth in love, but we are speaking the truth. So it's worth asking the question, are you doing that? Has there been a time in the last month that you've had a hard conversation with a brother or sister in Christ, somebody in your Somebody in your group, somebody that you know here at the church, he said, hey, I see you going down this path, and, and I want to encourage you, I want to exhort you, don't go down that path. That's going to lead you to destruction. Come this way. Look, let's pursue joy together. Have you done that? Are, do you receive that from other people? Are you willing to have people say hard truth to you? Or when somebody says hard truth to you, do you just mark it off as judgmental and say, oh, they're just judgmental and condemning. I'm going to another church. Man, if you want to grow up in godliness, if you want to become more like God, you have to speak the truth of love to others and let others speak the truth of love in you. Because the love of God is not a vague sort of sentimental love over here like our society talks about it. The hesed love of God is a holy love. That's the first thing we learn. Here's the second thing we learn. God's love is costly. God's love is costly. Sometimes love is free. What do I mean by that? Well, like, I love the mountains, and I love sports, and that doesn't cost me a dime, right? Sometimes love is free. You can love something, and it's not a bad thing. It just means it doesn't cost you anything. But sometimes love is costly. To love a child, to love a spouse, even, like, really love your job and, and feel like it's a calling, that's costly, right? That is going to require something of you. It's going to require investment. It's going to require sacrifice. So what about God's said love over here? What kind of love is that? Is that a free love? Or is that a costly love? Well, in, in the interactions of these characters, we see that God's love is a costly love. He's willing to pay great costs. He's willing to pay an incredible price to love his people. Think about it. We see the costly nature of Hesed love in Ruth. Think about all the risk that she took in this chapter because of her love for Naomi. She risked her safety, her reputation, her job, her relationship with Boaz. Why? Why would she risk so much? Why would she pay such a great price? Because she loved Naomi with hesed love. Not just with like a vague, hey, I love you, bro. Like, hope your life is going well. But ooh, don't, don't come at me when you're struggling or you need help. Like, ah, that, that's, that's going to like cramp my style. No, she's like, look, I'm willing to lay down my life for you. I'm willing to put it all out there for you. We also see the costly nature of hesed love in Boaz. I mean, think about the price he paid to be able to redeem Ruth. On the surface, he paid a price economically. Like, it cost him a lot of money. 
His harvest was smaller that year because of how much generosity he poured out on Ruth and Naomi. If you sort of take how much grain Ruth got the first night and you multiply that over six weeks, I mean, Boaz gave them at least 500 pounds of grain. At least 500 pounds of grain. That would translate to two or three months of income. All right, so his generosity to Ruth and Naomi was costly. He paid a price economically, but he also paid a price socially. And this is, you've got to kind of understand the culture then to understand this. When he made Naomi the foreign beggar and equal at his table, it cost him something. And he was about, in chapter four, he's going to march into the middle of town with all the leading people in town, and he's going to say, hey guys, I want to marry a Moabite. Don't miss this. He's going to go into town and say, I want to enter into an interracial marriage. Okay? Like, Interracial marriage costs you something in our culture today. Interracial marriage costs you a whole lot more in the culture then. And Boaz is going to walk into the town square and he's going to say, look, I know all of you are going to be frustrated with this. I know there's going to be a whole contingent of you that are going to criticize me. I probably won't have favor in the same way that I've had in town. I probably won't have the same economic opportunities, but I'm willing to do this because I want to redeem Ruth. Look, it cost him a lot. So what about God's love? Did it cost him something? And God's love for us cost him enormously. He paid the highest possible price. What do I mean? Well, he's holy, right? We just talked about that. So God can't just love us in all of our impurities, right? In all of our failures and our flaws and our sins. He can't just wink at them and push them away. He has to deal with that sin. So what did he do? He sent his only son, he sent his most prized possession, Jesus Christ, to come to the world and to take on flesh and to live a perfect life and then on the cross to trade places with you. Jesus didn't die for his own sins, he died for our sins. He didn't just die for you, he died instead of you. Why did he do that? Why did God give up his own son? Why did God turn his face away from his only begotten son, his most prized possession? for you. The Hesed love of God is not a thin, superficial love that comes and goes. It is a strong, deep, sacrificial, committed, I'm here, I'm not going anywhere kind of love. And, and that truth, church, should thrill you to no end. The God of the universe, the God who hung the stars, the God who pulled the Rocky Mountains out of the ground, the God who hollowed out the seas, loves you so much that he gave up his only son to save you. Look, there is no greater foundation for personal identity than that. There is no greater grounds for self-esteem than that. That the one who really matters in the end, the majestic God of all the universe, was willing to pay such a price for you. And as we dwell on that, that really gets into us, it's going to change how we relate to other people. And I think it begs an important question. Do we, do you love other people with a costly sort of love? Does your love for others look like Ruth's love for Naomi and Boaz's love for Ruth? Unfortunately, I think one of the greatest critiques of Christianity in America is that we don't love other people like God loves us. We don't. We often we often kind of come in and maybe say hello and, you know, be here for the 90-minute service or whatever and then go home. We don't really interact with other people outside of Sunday morning. 
Or we interact with people, but when they start becoming needy, we sort of stiff arm, right? I mean, to be honest, my instinct and my flesh and my sin is as soon as somebody starts requiring something of me, I'm like, ooh, like I want to push away, right? But God's love flips that entirely on its head. God moved towards need. God moved towards cost. And if we're a child of his, if we've been redeemed by that kind of love, we're called to show that love for other people. So what might that look like? Simply, it might look like engaging with a person relationally that you find hard to engage with, that you think they're kind of uncomfortable or awkward, right? It might mean pushing through and forgiving somebody who's offended you. It might mean not just avoiding that person that you have a beef with, but like talking it out, having a dreaded intentional conversation, right? It might mean, man, man, providing for somebody who's in need, sacrificing like Boaz some of your economic prosperity so that someone else can be provided for. There's a hundred different ways to apply it, but I think the question is important. Does our love for one another look like God's love for us? God's love is costly. That's the second thing we learn. Here's the last thing. God's love takes initiative. God's love takes initiative. One of the most striking aspects of this entire chapter is the bold initiative taken by all the characters. Naomi concocts this crazy plan out of love for Ruth. Ruth carries out the crazy plan out of love for Naomi, but then goes even further and takes initiative to to ask for the sale. To basically say, I want you to marry me. And then Boaz, maybe he's kind of stirred up out of his complacency by the initiative of these two women. Boaz says, all right, I'm going to deal with this tomorrow. I'm not going to wait. I'm not going to like kind of let this linger. Like, I'm going to go into town tomorrow and talk to the man. And if he's going to marry you, great. If not, I'll do it in a heartbeat. Right? All the interactions of these characters are marked by initiative. And all of those actions are simply illustrations of God's love. Because throughout the Bible, throughout history, God's love has been defined by initiative. You see, in our culture, we say that love is a response to loveliness. Do you understand what I mean? I love this woman because she's pretty or funny or charming. So all those things create love in me. You tracking with me? I love UVA because of its X and Y and Z, right? Our love is a response to the loveliness of something else. But God's love is different. God's love is an overflow of his perfect character and nature, and he shows love to things like us that are not lovely in nature. What do I mean? Well, think about Genesis 1. God was perfect, content in every way. He wasn't lonely. He was glorified. He had perfect love relationship in the Trinity, and yet he spoke, and he created the heavens and the earth, and he made man out of dust, and he breathed the breath of life into him. And what incredible initiating love. Then, Mankind turned away from God. We rejected God's love. We said, we don't want you. We don't need you. All of the nations of the earth were plunged into sin. No one sought after God. That's what Genesis tells us. And then Genesis 12, God initiated again. And he went to this pagan idolater guy named Abram, and he said, hey, Abram, I'm going to make of you a nation that is going to be chosen by me, and I'm going to place my special love on your people, and I'm going to build this nation so that one day this nation will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. What did Abraham do to deserve that love? Nothing. And if you read Abraham's story, he wasn't a great guy. It's not like he was really, really righteous, and so God was like, there's a man that I can trust. Let's build. No, Abraham was a jerk in a lot of ways. It's just that God's love initiated. God's people went down into slavery in Egypt, right? They weren't following him. They weren't crying out to him, and God took initiative to raise up Moses, and through Moses, he delivered them out of slavery and bondage, and he brought them into the promised land. But they forgot. They forgot God's faithfulness. So you know what they did? They did the book of Judges. And they 
time and time again rejected God and they spiraled down in this horrible moral decay. No one cried after God. So do you know what God did? He raised up King David. He raised up a king after his own heart that would lead his people to faithfulness. We've arrived. We have the king. We're there. No, we're not. Immediately after King David, they start going downhill again. They reject God. They forget him. They worship idols. They sacrifice children. I mean, it's just horrible. And God raised up prophet after prophet to call them back. He sent them Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Joel and Micah and Zephaniah and Malachi and a whole bunch of others. And the message was the same, come back to me. You're walking in sin. This is going to be your destruction. Stop, come back to me. He took initiative and they didn't listen. So God did the final thing that he could do. He came himself. He sent Jesus Christ, the God man, to come take on flesh, to live a perfect life, to call us to the kingdom of God, to say, this is what you were created for, and then to die at the hands of the very people that he had come to save. Jesus paid the penalty on the cross for all of the sins of the world. There is no greater act of initiative and love than the cross. You see, religion works this way. You do good, you do good works, and maybe you can climb the ladder up to God and maybe he'll accept you. That's, that's every religion in the world. That's Islam, that's Buddhism, that's, that's Hinduism, that's everything. Biblical Christianity is radically different than that. Biblical Christianity says you could never make your way up to God, so instead God came down to you. We could never save ourselves, so God in love and at extraordinary cost to himself initiated through the sacrifice of his one and only son. So that now, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, you can be cleansed, you can be forgiven, and you can be brought into the family of God. Naomi initiated because she loved Ruth. Ruth initiated because she loved Naomi. Boaz initiated because he loved Ruth. God initiated because he loves you. The question is, have you received that love? Have you received it? Have you repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Have you become a child of God? God, like Boaz, is saying, you're welcome to come in. I will cover you in the shadow of my wings. Have you responded to that? Maybe you have. Maybe you're a Christian, but you've slid back into living like you have to initiate to God. Like, I better have my quiet time every single day. I better do all the right things or else God is going to stop loving me. And that, it's just, that is a complete misunderstanding of the entire Bible. Friends, the book of Ruth is a beautiful love story, but don't miss the fact that it is highlighting a much more beautiful love story. And that is the love story of God for his people. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your extraordinary love, your extraordinary initiating, life-transforming love. I pray that I would be filled more and more with it. I pray that our church would be defined by it, and I pray that the people here would receive it this morning, maybe for the first time, that you would be pleased to save sinners and bring them into your family, that you'd be pleased to encourage saints or build this church on the radical, wonderful love of God.